It, it is such a joy to me to be able to introduce Ray Stedman to you this morning. Uh, some of you are probably wondering what I do for work anymore. Uh, I, I'll be back next week. I have been away for a while, but I could not pass up the opportunity to uh, ask Ray to come a little early and, and teach you this morning, teach all of us. As you know, we have a COBE conference coming up. And uh, three men are coming from uh, pastorates, uh, Bernie Kuyper and uh, Ray Stedman and Ron Lee Davis, who will be teaching pastors here through the week. Now, I should tell you, there's a notice in the bulletin, but we didn't make a public announcement, at least not this morning, that these men will also be speaking in the evening. Ray is speaking tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, and I believe Ron Lee, Lee Davis on Tuesday night and... Uh, uh, Dr. Kuyper on Wednesday night, and then Ray again on Thursday night. And those sessions are open to the public at 7 o'clock every night. And what you will hear this morning is, is a foretaste of the good teaching that we'll receive all week. Uh, I had a dream about Ray Stedman last night. I, uh, he, he's staying with us. And uh, I dreamed that I uh, went looking for him in our house, and I found him in this uh, in this room that I wasn't even aware that we had in our house. It was a very cold, sterile-looking room. It looked like a monk's cell. And over against the wall was a very small, narrow, hard cot. And underneath the cot was a, was a throw rug about so big. And there were two holes worn in the carpet where, obviously, knees had worn the nap off of the carpet. Someone had been praying there for hours and hours, and when I walked in, I expressed some surprise, and Ray pointed to the carpet, and he said, that's the power of my ministry. And I went upstairs and started looking for a room where I could uh, put a throw rug down and, and start praying. But the, that at least gives you some feel for the, for the feeling that I have for Ray and for what I've learned from him over the years. You know, one of my favorite sayings is Gordon McDonald's uh, little uh, aphorism, uh, a dwarf on a giant shoulder sees farther of the two. And Ray is one of the giants in my life. If uh, he tells some of my stories and illustrations, you know where he got them. <laughs> well, I hardly know what to say after an introduction of that sort. I was afraid when he said he had a dream about me, it would be a very bad one. Sort of like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams in the book of Daniel. But uh, as I, he, when he told me about that this morning, I said, well, you've got the right principle for ministry, but you've certainly got the wrong person. <laughs> I haven't uh, yet worn a hole through the floor with praying, but I wish that were true, because I think I, I certainly believe in the principle. And I want to say, too, what a joy it is to me to be up here at Cole Community again. I've had the privilege of speaking to a number of groups here and uh, also last year at the COBE conference of preaching and teaching here through the evenings, but this is really the first opportunity I've had to preach on a Sunday morning, and I greatly appreciate it. I see some dear old friends. Here's the Trebers over here. All these ex-PBCers are up here. So I want to greet you from the folks at home until you come back, all is forgiven. <laughs> we do send greetings to what we regard as a, a sister church up here in Idaho.
And I want to tell you how proud we are of David Roper and all the others who have come up here from our place, and we've had a little hand in what's going on here in Idaho. I feel privileged indeed to take the place of the Bishop of Idaho here this morning <laughs> and be able to speak to you. Uh, I, I asked that that hymn one day would be sung just before I preached for a special reason. I was speaking at a pastor's conference a couple of years ago up in the state of Washington across the bay from Seattle, and uh, there was an excellent song leader leading our services. I, one thing I enjoy greatly about pastors' conferences is the singing. Nobody sings like pastors. They all know the hymns by heart. You don't need any hymnals. And they've all sung them for years. And they just put themselves into it. And there's nothing like a group of pastors singing. And we were singing some of the great hymns of the church. And this song leader came out one morning and he said, I want you to sing what I regard as the greatest hymn ever written. And he, he had us turn to this hymn, One Day, by J. Wilbur Chapman. Some of you may not know who he is. He was a, uh, an evangelist in the earlier part of this century, widely used of God, traveled all over the world, held great evangelistic campaigns, uh, along with uh, Billy Sunday and others at that time. And he wrote this hymn. And what was so striking about it, according to this man, was that the theological content of this hymn it covers, he says, every important doctrine concerning the person of our Lord. Now, I invite you, if you'd like to, to turn to it again in page 167 and see what he's talking about. It's all summarized, really, in the chorus. There are five verses, as you see, to this hymn, and they reflect, reflect and uh, enlarge upon... The five phrases in the chorus. Living, he loved me. And this speaks of his incarnation, which the first verse tells us about. How uh, one day when heaven was filled with his praises, Jesus came forth. That's the incarnation. Then the next phrase in the chorus is, dying, he saved me. And you'll notice the second verse deals with that. One day they led him up Calvary's mountain. And the third phrase is, buried, he carried my sins far away. And that's the subject of the third verse. And then, rising, he justified freely forever. That's the subject of the fourth verse. And then, one day he's coming, O glorious day. And this man said, this is a great hymn, because you can't sing it without covering all the themes of theology. Well, I was greatly impressed by that. And as we were singing it, it suddenly struck me that though what he said was true, there's a tremendous omission, omission in this verse. There's a great truth left out completely. And as we were singing it, it struck me that the, the truth that's left out of this song is the truth that Jesus regarded as the most important of all. In fact, it's the subject of the whole upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. Most of you, I'm sure, know that from chapter 13 
through chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, you have that intimate discourse of Jesus with his disciples in the, in the privacy of the upper room when he unloaded his heart to them just before his own death. And uh, scholars have long agreed that this is one of the most sacred, one of the most precious bodies of truth ever revealed. Our Lord is opening the eyes of his disciples to vistas they had never seen before. And I think fulfilling the words that he himself quoted about him when he came, that he would utter truth that had been hidden from the foundation of the world. Now, the, what's left out here is that truth. What is it? Any of you know? Did you catch it? The reason it's left out is because it's often left out of the truth, of the church. And uh, though we sometimes pay lip service to it, a lot of people don't seem to know this truth. And yet it's the greatest truth in the, in the New Testament in many ways. Anybody find it? It's the truth of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. See, that great event is totally left out here, isn't it? And yet that's the subject of Jesus during the Upper Room Discourse. What that would mean to his church is the most important thing that any Christian can deal with. And I'd like to turn to the Upper Room Discourse this morning and uh, ask you to look at with me at a passage excerpted from the heart of this marvelous uh, discourse. In the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, we're going to take some verses arbitrarily out of the center of the Lord's words uh, to his disciples on that uh, remarkable occasion. And uh, I wish I could take more. The whole context is rich and marvelous, but we're only going to take just a few verses from them. I uh, will begin reading with verse 15 out of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus says to his disciples, remember the scene? These men are afraid, fearful, and anxious, and troubled. They, they know the city is, is filled with their enemies. They see the plot to put Jesus to death coming into focus. Judas has left them. They don't know why. They sense the danger to their themselves. They see the the net tightening around them and they're afraid for their own lives and most of all they're they're struck with fear because of what Jesus said about leaving them going away and uh, leaving them and this has clutched their hearts with the clutch of fear and Jesus says to them if you love me you will keep my commandments and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, 
for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you desolate. Orphans is the word. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now that's all we're going to take this morning, those remarkable words. But they constitute an introduction to the whole truth of the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts today. Now I find an infinite amount of confusion among people today on this subject. There have been so many distorted teachings about the Holy Spirit today that the whole Christian community seems to be divided over this theme. And I think, therefore, it's very important that we come back and listen to the Lord Jesus himself teach us about the Holy Spirit. These are words we can trust because they come from the Lord himself as to what the work of the Spirit will be. I often look at the Upper Room Discourse as kind of a weekend seminar. It's very popular to have these these days. Down in California, there's no weekend goes by, but what you've got somebody putting on a seminar about something. The uh, human potential movement that has expresses itself in many manifestations today always has a seminar going. And uh, sometimes they charge a great amount of money to uh, learn how to understand yourself. I ran across this advertisement the other day in California. It uh, rather summarizes what uh, is often offered in this regard. It said, start the major love affair of your life by spending a weekend with yourself. Take two days out of your life to spend just with you. To explore and discover yourself in ways you cannot do by yourself. (laughs) Discover the most fascinating, wondrous, magnificent person you will ever know. Yourself. In an experience you'll never forget. Now it only costs $250. (laughs) And this seminar was called the Advocate Experience. And you know, when I read that, I thought, <laughs> that's so, that's so kooky. <laughs> and yet, what a wonderful title for the Upper Room Discourse. The Advocate Experience. The Holy Spirit is called in the Gospels the Advocate, the one for us. The Counselor, as Jesus called it here, as it's translated in my version. Uh, the comforter is the older name for him. The helper, the one who's coming. And this is our Lord's seminar on the Holy Spirit as to who he is and what he can do. Now in these verses, especially in the first uh, four, 
you have packed in there six remarkable things about the Holy Spirit, who he is, that I want, to, I want us to look at, first of all. You notice the first thing he says is that the Holy Spirit will be a gift from the Father in answer to the prayer of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor, another comforter, another advocate. Uh, Our Lord prefaces this with the words, if you love me. Now, I think a lot of people have misunderstood this phrase because they think that it's saying, if you keep my commandments, you will love me. Jesus didn't say that. A lot of us have read it that way, and it always turns us off because it sounds like a demand to behave before you, you, you receive the benefit of that. But our Lord really is saying it quite the other way around. He's saying, the only ones who love me are those who know me. And this is the proof that you know me, is that you, you love me. And if you love me, you'll find it easy to keep my commandments. That's what he's saying. We know this is true. If you love somebody, it isn't hard to, to do what they ask you to do. You delight in doing that. And what our Lord is saying here, this is the mark of a true believer. Not somebody who's using Christianity as a false front to sort of gain a reputation, but one who really, genuinely is born again will know it because there's a deep sense of love for Jesus. And that's always the glue that binds the Christian community together, isn't it? Love for him. If you love me, Jesus says, it'll be evident because you keep my commandments. You delight to do what I say. And the thing that will make it possible to do that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. I will pray the Father and he will give you another counselor. Remember, Jesus had spoken of this earlier in the Gospel of John, in that seventh chapter on the great day of the Feast of the, of the uh, Lights, when uh, <clears throat> he stood up on the last day and said, uh, If anyone thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And John adds, This he said about the Spirit which they that believe on him would receive. Now, I think that's very helpful because the first important truth that Jesus wants us to understand about the Spirit is that when you believe in Jesus, truly believe on him, you receive the Spirit. There's no second act of grace in which the Spirit comes after you believe. Now that's according, that fits according to what the Apostle Paul tells us. In in Romans the 8th chapter he says, he that has the Spirit, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not of His. It takes the Holy Spirit to make us Christians in the first place. 
And the Spirit of God comes without sign or any kind of manifestation. He's given to those who believe. One of the important verses to me in, in that seventh chapter of John's Gospel is found in the 30th verse down at the close of the chapter almost where it says, As Jesus was speaking to them, many believed on him. Now when they believed, the Spirit was given. This is what he said would happen. And these disciples were among that group. The Spirit came and dwelt with them. Uh, this, As we know, this was before Pentecost, and so there's coming a further experience for them. But today, the Spirit of God is given to those who believe on him. And there's no need, therefore, to pray for more of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is a, is a person, and he comes all in one piece, if you like. When I entered this room, I didn't send in my arms first. Or my legs. I came as a person. I came as a unit. And the Spirit of God comes that way. It's a mistake today to pray for more of the Spirit. You can't have more of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit at all, you have all that He is. And therefore, to pray for more of the Spirit uh, uh, simply indicates that you don't yet understand what the Scriptures have taught about the, about the spirit of grace what you need is for him to have more of you now that's different you can give more of yourself to the spirit and that's Christian growth but you can't ever have more of the spirit of God and our Lord makes that clear here the spirit comes he says by as a gift from the father and separate he's a separate person from Jesus. Uh, as he says here, he will give you another counselor. Now, you've undoubtedly been taught here in this well-taught church that, you, that this is, in the Greek, a word that means another of the same kind as Jesus. You see, all these disciples, through the years of their ministry with the Lord, had been kept by his power. He said so. Later in the 17th chapter, he prays and says, I, Father, have kept them in thy name. Jesus kept these disciples. He watched over them. He guarded them. When they were in danger, he came to them. When they were fearful, he delivered them. When he sent them out, he empowered them. He gave them all the strength by which to live the Christian life. But now, he says, it's going to be changed. Another is coming to do that work. Another just like me. And he's not the same person. But he will be closely related. And here we have the truth of what theologians call the doctrine of the Trinity. That strange teaching about God that says, without, without doubt, God is one God, but there are three persons within the Godhead, and they're quite separate from one another, and yet they always work in such perfect harmony that though you can't separate their work, you must understand that they're not the same. Now, I'm not going to labor that because 
I think it's difficult for us to grasp that truth, but it is a truth. And here our Lord indicates this very plainly. The Spirit is not the Son, nor the Son the Spirit, but they will work in perfect harmony together. And then the third thing he says here, which is most important, is, I will be a pray the Father, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. There again is a marvelously important truth. He, when he comes, is a continually abiding presence. You don't lose the Spirit of God once he comes to your life. You may lose the sense of his presence. And many people feel that. Uh, Sometimes deliberate sin will interfere with the sense of his presence. But you haven't lost his presence. It's like the sun Going behind the cloud, you don't feel its brightness or its warmth any longer, but it's still there. And so it's possible in the Christian life to lose the sense of the presence of the Spirit. But you don't lose the presence. He's still there. Remember that great verse in Hebrews 13, it's one of my favorites, that says, Be content with what you have. That is, don't envy your neighbor's uh, new new uh, ski boat or his camping RV trailer or his swimming pool or whatever it else. Be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the strongest negative, by the way, in the Greek language. It's put four times uh, in, if you translate it into English, it would be something like this. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, for any reason, leave you nor forsake you. So as Jesus says here, he's a continually abiding presence. And we only need to ask ourselves, what is my relationship to him, not whether he's left me again. Now there's a fourth great truth here. Jesus says that when he comes, he will be the spirit of truth. I don't think there's any part of the Christian experience that is more precious to me than that. This means that when the spirit of God opens the word of God to me, He's telling me the truth, the way things really are. The longer I live, the more I see how confused and mixed up this world is. The greatest minds of our age, brilliant as they may be, and we've got some brilliant thinkers in the world today, are nevertheless muddled and confused in their thinking. And they're not even aware of it. I live and teach and work in the shadow of a great university in Palo Alto, Stanford University, one of the prestige schools of the day. There are tremendous uh, scientific laboratories there, great atom smasher running back into the hills two miles into the mountains. There's a great medical center. There are law schools and business schools. and It's a tremendous accumulation of the wisdom and knowledge of man. 
But you know, there's never a day goes by but what I'm aware that Stanford University is infinitely confused in certain areas. They don't know how to solve some of the simplest problems and long-standing problems in the world. They can turn out impressive computers that flash lights at you and dazzle you with all their impressive ability to accumulate facts and figures together. Uh, they turn out all these amazing new uh, electronic marvels and all this new equipment for sustaining life and new hearts and new lungs and livers and all everything else. And yet they can't solve some very simple problems that have been with us for a long, long time. I was reading a few years ago, way back in some of the Greek historians who wrote 400 years before Christ, Herodotus and Thucydides and some of these jaw-breaking names. And uh, <clears throat> I made a list of the things that they were writing about that were problems in their day. I found five of them. Here they, here's what they were. They were concerned about what looked like the immediate outbreak of warfare between the superpowers of that day. They were concerned that the whole world would be dragged into a terrible conflict if the two great empires of that day ever clashed. And second, they were concerned about the breakdown of the home. Marriages were falling apart. Divorce was skyrocketing. And they were deeply concerned about the threat to society from the breakdown of the home. They were also concerned about the rebelliousness of youth. About the fact that the present generation had no respect for the older ones. Wouldn't listen to them. Went their own way. And made all the mistakes in the book that they themselves had made when they were that age but uh, wouldn't listen to anybody's advice about it. The fourth problem was they were tremendously concerned about corruption in the courts and the government and the fact that justice was never to, not to be found in many of the courts of that day. And the fifth problem was a terrible concern about the awful chuck holes in the public roads. <laughs> Now, where's the progress that we boast about hmm? in our present-day life? See, we've made no progress in all these thousands of years since then in solving the basic problems. You know why? Because we, we program into our computers confused understanding. We put garbage in, and there's no surprise that we get garbage out. We can't understand why we can't solve these problems. But it's because we don't see things the way they really are. The world lives under illusions. And you can hear them paraded before you in the, in the media. Listen to the commercials on television. They'll tell you what people really think. They'll tell you that 
You're a unique creature who deserves the best. You've got it coming to you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're okay. And everybody else is okay. It's just a slight little adjustment in your carburetor that you need. And then everything will begin to, to work out. And we're told constantly that there's nothing really seriously wrong. It's just that if we tried a little harder, things would be all right. And the Word of God comes, taught by the Spirit of God, and says, that's not so. We're basically a lost race. We are hopeless. We are helpless. We can't change ourselves. We can't get hold of the problem within us. We constantly paint ourselves into a corner trying to correct what's wrong. And we end up with no place to stand, no place to go. And it happens over and over again. And the reason is we don't understand that we're hopelessly, helplessly lost. And only a Savior can deliver us. But when you open the word of truth and you're taught by the Spirit of God and you begin to see life as God sees it, as taught in his word, everything takes on a different hue. There is hope in the midst of man's hopelessness. There is a way out of his dilemma. There is a way of deliverance from the darkness and the death all around us. And it works. And it's true. And you're led more and more as you understand it into a practice that cuts right across the philosophy of the world around and you discover you're part of a counterculture movement that uh, moves against the trends of the time but fills your heart with joy and peace and a sense of triumph and deliverance and you're headed for a future of grace and of glory. That's the spirit of truth. That's the work of the spirit of God to give hope in the midst of the hopelessness of mankind. Flying up here on the plane yesterday, I was reading in the airline magazine about Ernest Hemingway. What a tragic thing that is. Over here, just over the hills, he took his own life in 1961. The idol of the, his own generation. Looked upon by millions as the as the supreme example of a man who ought to have the world in his grasp. But you could only have to read about him and what, how he acted and how he thought in those days to see how empty his life was, how futile it seemed to him, how wasted were all his great abilities, and how, how, how tasteless existence had become. All he wanted to live on, he had everything he needed to live on, but nothing to live for. Suffering from what somebody has so aptly called destination sickness, where you arrive at what you've always wanted to have, but you don't want anything you've got. And that's the sickness of the world. Now, God has given to us the spirit of truth who tells us the truth about ourselves. And if we believe it, we begin to see that it's confirmed by experience. 
the Bible fits the way things really are. And I don't think there's anything more significant than that. Then our Lord says there's still a fifth fact about this. This is unavailable to the world. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Now those last words applied only to the disciples. They were in a transition period where they had not yet received within their inner being the spirit of grace. Outwardly he had access to them and was ministering to them and working with them. Jesus says so. He dwells with you. But he shall be in you. And the day of Pentecost came when the Spirit came within them. So that all this great revelation was to come from within. They would find their resource within, not without. Not from some outward support, but from an inward supply. And this is what is the secret for us. See, we begin our Christian life with the Spirit of God given within us. We begin with Pentecost, where the Spirit himself comes to dwell within us. He that does not have the Spirit of Christ is not his. So if we belong to his, we, him, we have the Spirit of Christ within us. And it's not available to the world. That means... No secular source can guide you in this area. This is what disturbs me about the, what I see as the widespread biblical illiteracy today. Why we're holding conferences like COBE conferences all over the country and uh, trying to capture the, uh, the uh, understanding and attention of pastors all over that what's needed in the church is a is the teaching of the Word of God, the truth of God, the thoughts of God, so that people begin to think about themselves the way God thinks about them and to think about their world the way God thinks about it because that's realistic thinking. Anything else is fantasy. And as they begin to think like God thinks, see... They begin to move contrary to the world. Be not conformed to this world, says the Apostle Paul. How? By being renewed, transformed in your mind. Let your thinking be changed by the Spirit of God. So the world can't help us here. No brilliant mind can guide us out of the morass of our own self-centeredness. Only the spirit of, of truth can do that. And that's why we need the wisdom of the word of God. Now the last great truth here, our Lord enlarges on a bit because it's so important. He says to these men who were fearful that he was going away and they'd lose him forever. He says to them what words that must have fallen on their ears with tremendous uh, encouragement. I will not leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you, he said. The great truth is that when the spirit of truth comes, when the other helper comes, I will come with him. 
You don't lose me when you get the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit to make me real to you. That's what he's saying. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Why? And because I live, you will live also. The secret of, of being alive, of being uh, an exciting person, of being whole and alive and real is the Spirit in you making me real to you. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, when the Spirit comes, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Back in the early part of this century, Albert Einstein, probably the greatest mind the world has produced, through much labor and thought, uh, worked through all the understanding he had of the physical universe to a point where he could reduce it to a simple little formula. And he, he, he introduced that formula to the scientific world. It literally changed the whole course of scientific knowledge and history. E equals mc squared. E is energy. Energy is the same as mass, m, mass, or matter, times c, the speed of light, squared. E equals mc squared. Simple little formula. But the whole exciting world of the new physics has stemmed from that understanding of that remarkably simple formula. Now, in a sense, this is what Jesus is doing here. He gives us what I regard as the simplest statement ever to be found in the scriptures, which in its impact upon human life is absolutely beyond assessing. It's incredibly powerful. You in me and I in you. And to understand that is the business of the Christian life. First, to understand what he means about you in me. That we're in Christ. We have the benefit of his death and resurrection and ascension. And all that is made uh, available to us. You in me. Ah, but beyond that, I in you. Me working in and through you and living in you and being with you continually. This is the great truth that he says is most important of all. He who has my commandments and keeps them does so because he loves me, he says. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. That's the first thing. And I will love him. That's the second. And manifest myself to him. That's the third. There's an intimacy with the Lord and with God himself that develops. Now, I've been impressed, as I watch the world in which I live, with the need, the deep hunger for intimacy. If you look at uh, 
at newsstands and listen to television and read the media, you'll discover everywhere people are desperately hungry for intimacy. That's why pornographic magazines flourish. People long to discover the intimate secrets of another person's life. That's why People magazine, with its revelation of what goes on in the secret lives of the stars and so on, is so compelling. That's why popular idols uh, become so attractive to people. I remember uh, when Elvis Presley was the, was the idol of the whole uh, teenage world. And when he died, people all over the world and the United States were shocked at the passing of one they called the king. And following his death, there came a great number, there surfaced a great number of young men who imitated Elvis Presley. They thought if they could just be like Elvis Presley, they'd have the world by the tail. One young man by the name of Dennis Wise actually had his face surgically lifted so he looked like Presley and he had his hair contoured and he looked exactly like his idol. He could play the guitar and he even made a few dollars appearing as a Presley look-alike. And one day he was interviewed about his passion to be like Elvis Presley and these are his words. I want to read them to you. Yes, sir, Presley has been an idol of mine ever since I was five years old. I have every record he ever made, twice over. I have pictures in the thousands. I have books, magazines, pillows. I even have a couple of books in German and Japanese about him. I even have tree leaves from the front of his house. It was embarrassing to me when I was in school, for the kids were always teasing me. When Elvis was wearing white boots, I went out and bought white boots. The kids called them fruit boots. <laughs> Teachers would always send me to the office because my two top buttons were unbuttoned. I'd button them, and, and then when no one was looking, I'd unbutton them again. But I never got to meet Elvis Presley. I saw him on the stage four times. Once I tried to run up to the stage, and once I stood on the wall of Graceland, the Presley Mansion, and tried to see him. For 12 hours I stood there, trying to get a glimpse of him. But he had so many people around him that I could never get close. What a tragedy. Those words describe sheer idolatry. The longing of somebody to be intimate with some great person. And yet this is the very truth offered by Jesus here. I will come to him and love him and be with him. And the intimacy of the Son of God is offered to us. Now this is a great practical value. Jesus began this chapter with... Words that I call uh, mini manual for stress management. It's these words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. See, believing in Jesus means intimacy with him. 
sharing with him, companionship with him, on a day-to-day practical basis, letting the inward eyes of your soul see him, think about him, talk to him, share experiences with him. That's what's missing in so much of Christian life today. And instead, we're looking like the world does, to outward support, when all the inward support that's offered to us by the Spirit of grace, uh, making real to us the person of Jesus, is ignored. This is why people fall apart at the seams. But every once in a while, you find somebody who understands this. And though they go through great pressures and great troubles, they remain inwardly calm, uh, able to handle it, able to cope with life. That's somebody who is taking these words very seriously. And that's what's offered to us all. I think someone has well uh, gathered this up into a, a little poem that's a favorite of mine. It says, No distant Lord have I, loving afar to be. Made flesh for me, he cannot rest until he rests in me. I need not journey far, this dearest friend, to see. Companionship is always mine. He makes his home with me. I envy not the twelve. Nearer to me is he. The life he once lived here on earth, he lives again in me. Ascended now to God, my witness there to be. His witness here am I, because his spirit dwells in me. O glorious Son of God, incarnate deity, I shall forever be with thee because thou art with me. That's the Christian life. That's what changes the world. Let's let's stand together and just pray in closing here as we bring this to a close this morning thank you Lord Jesus for this wonderful truth how often we've neglected it set it aside allowed the world to get to us felt the panic and the pressure with, uh, from the things without without any answering pressure from within forgive us Lord for living below our heritage. Help us this day to take hold again of that which has been so wonderfully provided for us through the sacrifice, your sacrifice upon the cross. May these words come home to us and enrich our lives and bless and strengthen us all. We ask in your name. Amen.